if your child does have any kind of um, therapeutic need, making sure that you are, you know, preferably in the sessions or you're having really direct contact with the therapy providers, because, because I think the most important thing especially for little ones is making sure that you have that generalization loop. So it's like, I always say what happens in the therapy room does not stay in the therapy room because really what's so important is what the kid is doing all the times that they're outside of therapy, because I'm really just one small piece of the puzzle. So I always think of myself as kind of the conductor and I'm really working in collaboration with the parents and maybe other providers to make sure that we're all on the same page. Welcome to the Well Child Podcast, hosted by Dr. Sammy and Dr. Anna, two board-certified pediatricians and best friends known as the PediPals. This is a safe space where parents, caretakers, guardians, and those interested in pediatric health can find accurate parenting and medical information to raise healthy and happy children. To stay connected with us, follow us on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at the PediPals or visit our website at www.thepdpals.com. We are so grateful to have had a successful first season where we invited widely respected experts to discuss important topics. Here's to an even better season two just for you. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Well Child. Today's topic is one that a lot of our families have requested, um, and it's something that me and Sammy deal with on a daily basis. Um, It's going to be talking about our kids with autism and special needs, and we have the perfect expert here today to discuss more about it. Today we have Miss Rosemary Griffin. She is a certified speech and language pathologist, board certified behavioral analyst, and she divides her time between a public school and her own private practice, as well as ABA speech therapy. She is the founder of ABA Speech and offers therapy services, courses, consultations, and products that are geared towards helping autistic students find their voice. Um, Rose is also the host of her own podcast, Autism Outreach Podcast, a weekly show all about autism and communication. And I'm sure she's going to be a wealth of information since this is her area of expertise, and we can't wait to learn more about it. So thank you and welcome to our podcast. I'm so very excited to be here and talk and meet both of you. Thank well, thank you. you. And um, that was a great introduction by Anna, but I'm wondering if you could also tell us maybe some stuff that you want our audience to know about yourself Absolutely. and yeah. anything at all. Yeah, absolutely. I have been a speech therapist for the past 20 years, so I'm calling myself seasoned to this point. Uh, Not old, but I've been doing this for quite a while, and I just really love it. I love what I do. I love uh, helping autistic students as well as everybody that I work with start spontaneously communicating on their own, and that joy of really trying to help autistic learners uh, led me down the path of becoming a board-certified behavior analyst, and I've been duly certified for the past 10 years and there's only 450 people worldwide who hold both certifications. So it really allows me to help students who um, are hard to help and students who historically have not been able to make progress with traditional speech therapy. So I love being able to use both sides of my brain and to be able to help my students uh, that way. And thank you for mentioning the podcast. I started that a year ago. It's a weekly podcast called Autism Outreach. And we talk all about communication. So I'll have 
have autistic parents on, I'll have autistic adults, speech therapists, you know, you name it. We talk about autism and communication. I just really love connecting with people and disseminating information in that way. Wonderful. Well, I think the first thing that our audience probably wants to know is if you could walk them through, and I know it's it's easier said than done because it's not so simple, but could you walk them through what are the signs and symptoms of autism? What can a parent look for if they um, you know, are raising a child to know what to look for when, when it comes to neurodivergence and autism specifically? Absolutely. And, you know, that's one of the things I wanted to point out too. When I started presenting about 10 years ago in the field, the incidence rate was about one in 250. And I remember giving that talk and talking about that a lot, you know, and now just recently the CDC has said it's one in 44. So it's really affecting a lot of people's lives. And we just want to make sure that our our students are feeling supported. So, you know, autism is um, a developmental disability uh, that can cause significant social communication and behavioral challenges. And I think parents get, um, you know, worried about wanting to make sure that their children are talking. You know, in my private practice, I work with a lot of preschool age students. And so I am working with the parents too in providing parent advocacy, parent training and support because the special education process is just a lot to navigate, especially if you're not a part of it. Even being a part of it, there's a lot of loops and turns. So there's a really great website that I like called Autism Navigator. And Autism Navigator has a lot of really good information, um, as well as the CDC website, about you know what are some signs of autism? Because that's what's really hard to tease out is, does my child have a delay or does my child have autism? Um, and they're going to need a lot of the same supports initially. But, you know, if a child is not looking at you, eye contact is a big one. Um, You know, are they more preoccupied with objects um, instead of real life? Like I have a friend who um, has an online business and she shows uh, videos of her son when it was his third birthday. And I think he had received his autism diagnosis maybe a day or two before. And, you know, he's not attending to people at the party. He's not looking at everybody. That's pre-COVID, obviously, a long time ago when everybody is there and singing happy birthday, um, things like that. And so, and they may just have repetitive movements that may seem unusual to us, um, but are, are, are typical for them. And so those are some of the hallmark characteristics. And, and, you know, some people may say, oh, you know, just wait, you never know. And, you know, wait it out and see, but we know early intervention is so very important for all children, um, especially autistic students. So we want to make sure that we're getting our children, um, the intervention and support that they need and parents too. That's wonderful. Thanks for the breakdown. Yeah. Um, just for whoever's listening too, I, I want to make a few things real clear. Um, autism is something that you are born with. It is not something you can catch. Um, you cannot get autism from vaccines that has long been debunked and we shouldn't even be talking about it anymore because again, it's something that you're typically born with. It does tend to run in families and um, you, you can exhibit a variety of symptoms. The main things to look for are a social delay and a speech delay. Those are the two main big factors um, and make sure that you're going to your doctor's visits and so that you could be talking with your pediatrician and they can help you look out for those things. And um, I would say that the, the earliest, I mean, typically even though children do tend to exhibit their autistic tendencies um, from birth, 
the earliest that we as pediatricians can really start to identify it would be 15 months, but more like 18 months. And by mm-hmm. two, by two, we're pretty clear on uh, whether or not a child uh, is neurodivergent or not. And at that point, we're trying to get them an evaluation, potentially a hearing evaluation as well, and into therapies. And when you say early intervention is key, it's because studies have unanimously shown that the sooner you offer these therapies to these children in a non-traumatic way, um, the sooner they can start to make some, some big headway when it comes to communicating their needs. Absolutely. And I think that's the main thing is that early intervention is really great. That's why I like the private practice part of my life, because I do provide home-based services. I do collaborate with outside providers and school-based professionals too in that role. And it's really nice just to be a support to the parents, to see how the child is communicating in the home environment and just to coach the parents. You know, parents have a lot of questions. Well, you know, what do I do if this happens? Or, you know, what should I do when my child does this? Or, you know, how do we read a book together? You know, if they're not sitting with me and attending and, you know, all those things. Well, that's, that's okay. You know, we just need to have these things available. And sometimes I read to my own, I have three kids of my own and, you know, they're not always like with me the entire book. Right. But I'm still there. I'm still in that shared activity and kind of that social reciprocity, uh, that, Joint attention is what we call it in the field, but any type of shared activity is going to be so very important um, for any child, really. Yeah, no, thank you for specifying that. And I think what both of you clued into is kind of what is the need that's not being met here, you know, Um, because we have kids of of all different personality types, some kids that, you know, are very vocal from the beginning, some that become a little bit more vocal later. Um, But it's, it's really the bottom line comes down to how are they getting their needs met on a daily basis? And what kind of interactions are they having with their family and the people around them, you know, Um, because we know that they eventually they're going to go to school and they're going to be around other kids. And, and, and with some kids, they might just have an isolated speech delay, right? They might Mm -hmm. just uh, talk a little bit later, or some kids might have trouble processing the information that's given to them and then processing that information and then um, vocalizing it, you know? So there's definitely a lot of nuance in this, you know? And I think a lot of families get overwhelmed, but um, with with great specialists and, and therapists like you and with your pediatricians, I think the biggest thing is to identify, okay, what is one thing that is not being met? So for example, with communication, you know, because we see a lot of toddlers sometimes getting frustrated. You know, Mm. often we'll see parents (laughs) say, well, they, you know, they take me to the object they want, or they point, or they just cry and they get frustrated and and I'm not able to understand what they're needing. So that communication is something we pick up on early because, you know, we monitor for those milestones. Mm -hmm. So what are some ways that you help with the communication and the speech aspect of autism? Yeah, absolutely. And that's definitely going to be very um, individualized to the learner. But just like you said, you know, I really try to talk with parents and see like, well, where are they having trouble? Because we want to make sure that our students have a way to communicate. And that's really where, you know, if your child does have any kind of um, therapeutic need, making sure that you are, you know, preferably in the sessions or you're having really direct contact with the therapy providers, because, because I think the most important thing especially for little ones is making sure that you have that generalization loop. So it's like, 
I always say what happens in the therapy room does not stay in the therapy room because really what's so important is what the kid is doing all the times that they're outside of therapy, because I'm really just one small piece of the puzzle. So I always think of myself as kind of the conductor and I'm really working in collaboration with the parents and maybe other providers to make sure that we're all on the same page. But, you know, I just think making sure that your child is feeling supported. So, you know, if they are having a communication breakdown and they're not yet verbalizing, you know, could you teach your child sign language for simple things that they may want around the house? Or maybe your child's in early intervention services and they're using pictures, you know, and maybe you have some pictures on your pantry so that your child, if they want something that's up high, um, you know, that they're they're able to request and let you know things that they want, or if they want to go outside or, you know, whatever it is, um, that's kind of where we see that, that spike in behavior for anybody, because if we can't communicate things, we get frustrated and rightfully so. So I think making sure that if you get your child assessed through either early intervention or once they turn three, you know, your local school district and making sure that you really partner with your providers. So number one, you're in the loop because you need to know, do I like this provider? You know, do I like the therapy that they're providing? Because we as parents need to be critical of that. You know, if there's things taking place and we're not understanding why we really need to talk about that. And, you know, a lot of um, therapies, offer parent training too. I think that's so important. But now with like your podcast and my podcast, you know, there's almost like a communication overload. So sometimes it's helping parents filter that information. But I think really just understanding what is my child working on in therapy and how can I generalize that to home? Because really the entire day is a time to communicate. It's not that we want to demand communication from our children, but we can just use simple language and we can show them books and sing them songs. They don't always have to reciprocate. They don't always have to be right by our side, but that is really building that communication loop with our children. Perfect. Um, yes, that's wonderful. Um, and you did bring up the classroom. So I thought it'd be a good opportunity to segue to into maybe a little bit of an older uh, crowd, but yeah. do you have any strategies or recommendations for kids who are in the classroom um, who are, are neurodivergent or on the spectrum and how they could potentially excel? Absolutely. And I think that's a thing to think about too. If you're listening and you have a child who's autistic and maybe they're getting great grades and they're in all general education classes, sometimes in a school district, it's harder to get that type of specialized support because not every district is going to say, well, this student qualifies for speech therapy because every school has to have a, a way to show that they have an adverse impact on their educational performance. And that's really how you're tied to qualifying in a school district. Every school will be different. And I know that that's hard for parents, but when students are struggling, maybe socially, um, you know, working on helping students navigate social environments, and that's not a one size fits all curriculum. I know sometimes as intervention providers, you know, we want to know a curriculum or a way to teach, but I always say, you know what, nothing, nothing I make could ever prepare me. I work in a middle school, high school, three days a week, and I support autistic learners who, you know, are gifted and, you know, but they're just having some um, concerns around socialization or problem solving or self-advocating. And so those are things that we want to think about. Um, one skill that I really love um, is called video modeling. And so we can show our students a video of a skill. This is a very evidence-based practice. Um, and once we show them the skill, then we can practice the 
the skill. Um, I also provide intervention in the classroom. I mean, when I say intervention, I mean, I sit in the back and I don't talk to anybody. I just observe. Um, and then I talk with the student, you know, next time I see them in, in therapy, but making sure that you're talking with the providers, the teachers, having that kind of loop with the teachers is really, really important. So video modeling is great. And when I tell the kids about video modeling, I say, you know, are you ever on YouTube? Because I know the answer is yes. Everybody's on YouTube. I say, when I need something in my business, if I don't know how to do something, I watch a YouTube video, you know, like right with starting my podcast. I took a course and I watched somebody else do it. And then I tried it and then I got feedback. I mean, this is how we do social skills. And, and I always tell the kids, you know, think of me as your social coach. I'm here to be a support in the building. I'm here to talk with your teachers about maybe how you're struggling in class. And those are kind of the nuanced things that there is no set curriculum for things that are going to come up. If you think back to your middle school, high school, you know, it's just a hard time to navigate. And then especially with COVID and masks, and I could go on and on. And I know you guys have probably talked about that, but there's just so many things that come up. So I always tell my kids that I'm here to help you navigate these tricky social situations or these tri tricky problem solving scenarios that may come up. And so that's really how I try to lend a support. And that's for students who are speaking, who are in general education classes, who are maybe in gifted classes. Um, sometimes they fall through the cracks because they are doing so well academically. So parents need to be cognizant um, and maybe advocate for their students getting that type of support. That's awesome. Thank you so much for that breakdown. Yeah, we we often, um, you know, after the initial diagnosis and the initial therapies, when they go into school, we often forget that this is going to be a lifelong thing, you know, in terms of coping with stressful situations and transitioning from, you know, higher levels of education. And, and we know that a lot of children are very gifted. It's just the way they receive and communicate that information that might be different, you know? Um, so I appreciate that. I just want to dial back to the younger kids for a second. So yeah. sorry to jump back and forth, That's but okay. initially once we um, we see the we see the children. We recognize okay that there is some developmental delay. Um, we have them tested for autism, and then they start you know looking for therapists. Um, what is your approach? Do you prefer that they start with speech and occupational therapy, or they enter like a program? Um, what is your uh, I guess go to for that? Yeah, I think every, it's going to be so dependent on the parent and what the parent's thoughts are. You know, some parents are like, I have a student that I see right now and I, I think they're doing really great things for their child. He's very small. It's very cute. Um, and they are doing some ABA, some applied behavior analysis, and he's also going to his local school district and I'm seeing him and he's getting occupational therapy in the home. So I think they're doing a nice job of, you know, a little mix and, and he's really making so much progress. This is a student who, when I started working with him almost a year ago, um, was not engaged, didn't care if I was there. And then, you know, now he's doing all these really great things like imitating and playing with toys with me and singing wheels on the bus and, um, the alphabet song, 
I could go on and on. It's super fun. But I think you have to do what's right for you. You know, and these parents were like, well, you know, is it okay? You know, like asking me, like, is it okay if I tell the school that we want to do some ABA and we only want to do school two days a week? And I said, yeah, you know, you're the parent. You you know what's best for your child. You obviously want to listen to the experts, but you're an expert on your child. And so, you know, they were like, we can't do ABA full time because, you know, my kid's falling asleep in the car because it's a 30 minute drive, right? From where they're at. And you can see how it just affects the family dynamic. And so some families are going to say, you know what, we don't even want to get into all that. And then other families are going to say, we're doing just that. And so I think that's kind of sad when people choose just ABA and they don't value speech therapy, but I would say interview whoever you're going to use and make sure that that therapy provider allows you to come into the sessions because for really little kids, that's so important. You need to be there. You need to know what's going on and you need to feel comfortable with how the intervention is playing out. And, and the fact that you can ask questions, great providers are going to answer your questions with ease and be able to show you the scope and sequence of, well, this is why I'm doing it this way. You know, this particular family I'm working with, they wanted things that were a little more structured. And I said, Hey, you know, your child's three, like we're going to play. This is what we're going to do. So I've been seeing this student a year. I see him for a 45 minute session. I would say now about 35 minutes is more play-based in 10 minutes. We sit at a very small table and we do things that are a little bit more structured. So just making sure that you interview your providers, but speech therapy is absolutely super essential. Yeah, no, thank you so much for clarifying that. And what I love, um, the point that you make about parents just being directly involved and talking to their provider and really understanding what is happening in the therapy since they are the ones that are going to be spending the most time with their child and, and figuring out what their needs are. And, you know, as we as we ventured more online and on our podcast, you know, we have noticed we've, we've had lots of families with neurodivergent kids that have reached out to us and, and they have this kind of trauma associated with ABA therapy and some of the therapies, you know, over the years. And so, you know, for us, we're not directly involved in the therapy process, you know, we just want to get them to the right place and, and we want them to get all their resources and flourish. And so, you know, we're, we're navigating that ourselves as well and and what each child needs specifically, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so, uh, have you experienced that families that have had trouble with that, in, that intensive ABA therapy or, or children that have had trouble with it? This is what's really wild is that I have an online business and I've almost had it five years. So over that time, you know, my following, I mean, nothing like your TikTok following Bravo ladies, that's very, very impressive, but you know, I've been on Instagram. I have 20,000 followers. I've been doing this for a long time. I have courses, the podcast, um, in real life, in my daily clinical practice, not one person has brought up that topic. Okay. Online, that is very much the dialogue. But, you know, the thing is for me, and you may know Robin Resigno, she is Teach on um, TikTok. You know, we have very differing, you know, things. She, she is anti-ABA. Okay. She was a special ed teacher. She was later diagnosed autistic. Her daughter has autism. And we've talked about things back and forth on TikTok, you know, uh, commented and things like that um, the past year. And I had her on the podcast and we talked about autism in girls because she's an expert in that area. And the thing is, is I am listening to autistic voices. I am having people on the podcast 
who don't necessarily think the same way that I do because I want to keep an open dialogue. I don't have to have this idea of group think. Do I believe in the science of ABA? Have I absolutely seen it change lives? Have I worked with students who were 18, had all those traditional therapies that we talk about, but still had absolutely no way to communicate? until they came to an ABA center, we were provided them with very structured uh, instruction. And then they had a voice at 18. You know, I've seen so many case studies like that, that light me up about the science of applied behavior analysis. But I also listen to those naysayers too. And I think it's great. That's why I like Robin so much, because we can have a professional dialogue. You know, it's okay to not think exactly the same way, but me being a scientist, and I'm sure you're the same way, I'm going to take data on my intervention. And is it helping the child? Is it helping them find their voice? Is it helping them be a spontaneous communicator in their environment? If it's doing that, that makes my heart very happy. And that's my why. So now there are a lot of people saying those things. And while I do listen to those, and I will talk with people that want to have a professional dialogue, I'm not going to throw away all the success and all the students that I've helped over my 20 years. And now with my online platform, that many more people that I'm able to help. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's very interesting. So, so like you, um, our experience through our day-to-day job never brought this issue up. Uh, But then when we went online, we were slapped in the face with the um, anti-ABA kind of uh, community as well. And we actually have had a discussion with Robin not too long ago. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we were connected with her through good old TikTok. Yes. Um, yes. She's great. And, and actually my eyes were completely opened. Uh, I find that the, the, the points that are being brought up are actually not scientific, but they're philosophical. And mm-hmm. so I, I'm still processing and chewing on it, but I think I'm going to be looking at it very differently from now on. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the philosophical aspect of it is, is that, you know, we're, we've, we finally have a generation that has gone through ABA and come out the other side of neurodivergent mm-hmm. um, uh, people. And a, a huge portion of them are saying that the goals of ABA were not patient-centered and the measures that we're using to determine success are not person-centered. They're not centered around that person, but around what our view as a society is acceptable in, in terms of being a neurotypical person. So one question, I, I said something in one of my TikToks along the line, same, exactly the same, same thing you said, basically. And I mentioned something about communication and, and getting them to a yeah. point where they can communicate. And, and they said, well, why do you need them to communicate like in your way? And I, I mean, mm-hmm. I, it stunned me and I've been, I've been chewing on that for a while. I mean, I, I don't even know. I'm not sure how to answer that question, probably because they stumped me. Maybe, yeah. maybe I, maybe I'm looking at this all wrong. You know, maybe um, a neurodivergent person is completely fine um, without, you know, having the the communication skills that we consider as typical. So I, I do think there's a, an element of that. And like I said, I think I'm still, I, I don't know how you feel, Anna, but I'm still processing and, I, I kind of liken it to, uh, we all know, you know, at first I was thinking, well, this is kind of like, 
when people were like, oh, it's psychiatry, um, <laughs> you know, used electrotherapy and blah, blah, blah. Well, we've come such a long way, but psychiatry is so helpful now. I thought of it that way. I thought, well, we've come mm-hmm. such a long way with ABA that it's no longer that punitive, um, you know, punishing type of reward centric um, therapy. But but the truth is, I'm not sitting there, like Anna said, every day and making sure that every center is like that. And so if a bunch of my patients were to come to me and say, Dr. Sammy, that psychiatrist you keep sending us to is traumatizing us, I wouldn't mm-hmm. do it anymore. <laughs> I mean, right. I, would, I would stop doing that. And so um, I do think that, you know, this is probably the beginning of a new era. We've had this generation grow up now. And that we're going to be looking at at just what what our goals are for the neurodivergent community in a completely different way. But I think we can all agree. Um, and, and another thing I'm stumbled stumped with, and I'm sorry to go on a little bit, but I'm stumped with if if I'm making it patient centric. And I told Anna this the other day. How do I know what a two year old wants? Um, right. That's the age that this is happening, right? So I'm I'm assuming, and the parents are assuming that they want to learn to talk, <laughs> and that they want to. If their stimming is not hurting anyone, I agree. We don't need to be barking up that tree. If mm-hmm. their uh, lack of eye contact is is not affecting their day to day life, that's for me. That's not for them. I completely yes. And that. when I think that's what is really hard as a provider is there are parents who, and you know, I've made some TikToks, and those have been my most popular ones about, we don't write goals for eye contact. Like I, you know, I haven't done that for so long, but there's still speech therapists out there that are not BCBAs because most aren't, um, that are going to write goals for eye contact. And so it's just, when you know better, you do better. And so I think that's really important, but for us to sit here and say that we don't want our kids to be spontaneous communicators, I think as an interventionist and as a scientist, that that's just really unethical to say that we don't want all of our kids to have a way to communicate with the world, because how sad when I met that 18 year old student who had no way to communicate, who had been in speech therapy in a school district for 18 years and no Nobody could reach that student, but we taught him in a very structured way. And he was able to use a device to navigate his environment. And we saw a decrease in his problem behavior that was very unsafe because if at 18, you have had no way to communicate, you're going to come up with other ways to get your needs and wants met across your day. So I really see it as that's, what's so amazing about being a BCBA and a speech therapist is putting these two things together and really bridging the gap because whether you believe in ABA or you don't want to go down that route, this is what people are using for intervention. And so speech therapists working with BCBAs and collaborating along with parents is going to be very powerful for that therapeutic team and for the lifelong happiness, communication skills of that child. Yeah, I think it's going to take um, a lot of time and, and empathy and, and many years of, of trying to uh, talk to people. I mean, I kind of look at it, I use that ADHD analogy because a lot of people, you know, refer to that because we have our current like education system, you know, we have this education system and we, we want them to fit into this box of this education system. But if they don't necessarily, then we, you know, we kind of say, well, you might be doomed to fail, you know, if you don't fit into this particular box that we call, you know, school or education system. But we we all know that, you know, kids after they finish school, they could be very successful if they didn't necessarily fit into that educational academic box, you know. And I think it's similar with this conversation with 
with autism is that, you know, we're like you, you said in the beginning, you know, each child is different. We're not going to be able to put them in a box and we really have to be attuned to each child's need. And if that, you know, lack of communication or, or, or that is causing pain and is a pain point and is, is causing frustration in the home, you know? Um, so yeah, I think this is going to be a mix of philosophical and scientific, uh, you know, inquiry. And this is part of medicine. This is the part I love. And this is the reason we went into this podcast because we're all trying to change things for the better, you know? Mm -hmm. And if we can make, you know, one type of therapeutic intervention better and, and less stressful for the kids and for the families, then, you know, it's all worth it. So, so yeah, no, I'm totally glad we're having this conversation, but I did want to change gears as in, um, uh, to ask you a couple questions about other ways um, you think that other resources that you think that parents can have access to when they're trying to navigate, um, you know, how they get therapy, how they have their children succeed, you know, neurodivergent children succeed in the community. Um, do you, do you have particular resources for them online or yeah, I really love um, the Autism Navigator is a great site. There's a local site here, but it's a great site called Milestones. Um, and it's a really wonderful organization. I've presented there for the past 10 years. Now I'm on the executive uh, planning committee, which has been super, super fun. But what's nice is they have a conference every June. And what I think they do so great, and it was actually started by two moms who have autistic kids who are now adults, and they met in a therapy room. And they there was just like no resources, right? for parents back in the day. And so they started this amazing organization. And what's so cool about their conference, which now is virtual, um, is that they have a track for speech therapists, they have a track for special educators, and they have a track for parents. Um, and there's a lot of autistic adults that work in the organization. And like on episode 16 of Autism Outreach, I had Nathan Morgan on. He's an autistic adult who's also a social worker and he works for Milestones. So they just have like a lot of really good resources if your child's first diagnosed, you know, and I think that's what I would want to do is I, I think that's, what's so hard about the online space. Um, and Robin actually just made a TikTok about this is that when parents reach out in some of these Facebook groups, or, you know, on TikTok, especially with your following being so big, people are very, very nasty and very, very mean. If you think something different and I'm all up for having a professional dialogue with somebody who doesn't think the same with that I do, but for parents to get attacked because they're worried about their child who has apraxia or who has autism or who's two and is not talking yet. I think that's really, really sad. So I think staying away from Facebook groups and any type of social media as a parent and for anybody really is a good idea. And just Milestones is a great resource. They just have really amazing resources um, that would help any parent who has an autistic child. And then at abaspeech.org, you know, we have courses. Um, I have a course called Start Communicating Today that is geared towards speech therapists and parents. So, you know, if you're on a wait list, because this happens to a lot of parents, they're on a wait list to get an evaluation to have their child potentially diagnosed with autism, but their child's not talking and they're not getting robust services yet. Um, it just helps parents understand some of these ideas on how to embed communication across their students' day. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Um, can you tell our listeners where they can find you and where, um, you know, kind of where you are on social media? 
Absolutely. Visit me at abaspeech.org. That's where you can see my course called Start Communicating Today, which is perfect for toddlers and preschool age students and is very parent friendly. And visit me at Autism Outreach, which is my weekly podcast that drops every Tuesday all about autism and communication. Wonderful. Well, thank you again for for talking to us. I think it was super educational and I really appreciate your kind of like 180 view of this, or maybe a 360 view, I should say, of this whole situation. I agree that you're coming at it from a very unique angle of having both the speech and ABA aspect and um, appreciate the dialogue too. And I hope that we can chat again in the future. Thanks for having me. Thank you. You're tuned in to the Wild Child Podcast brought to you by the PD Pals. The PD Pals is our passion project and not-for-profit company where we aim to educate and empower parents and guardians and offer you accessible health tips. Our mission is to also support future female doctors. We currently have interns on our team who are all at different parts of their medical school journey. If you'd like to support our mission and help with our podcasting costs, you can donate to our Venmo at the PD Pals or our Zelle, which is hello at thepdpals.com. We greatly appreciate our audience's support. You can also support our interns on Venmo at interns-pdpals. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any other agency, hospital, organization, employer, or company. Assumptions made in the analysis are not reflective of the position of any entity other than the participants. The participants are critically thinking human beings. Therefore, these views are always subject to change, revision, reconsideration, and recalculation at any time. This podcast collaboration makes no warranties or representations as to accuracy, completeness, correctness, suitability, or validity of any information, communication exchange, and the participants will not be liable for any errors, omissions, or delays in this information, or any losses, injuries, or damages arising from its broadcast dissemination or use. All information is provided on an as-is basis. It is the communication recipient's responsibility to verify any facts.